0: it's quite justified to, uh, in a military sense, prepare for conflict. But I think that um, a little bit of extra thought and consideration needs to be given to non-conventional threats such as climate change. And I think it's important for governments to start to plan and prepare um, for the effects of climate change and to invest in assets that have a dual-use purpose. So things that can be used to provide, for example, um, surveillance benefit, um, in the region and with regards to potential threats, but also can be used to provide surveillance around natural disasters and provide um, information to help shape the response to uh, emerging climate change threats and not just traditional military threats.
1: From ASEAN to Australia, it's ASAP On Air. The show where we amplify young voices, explore diverse perspectives. And deepen conversations on key issues across Australia and Southeast Asia. Hello, and welcome to ASIP On Air. I'm Claude, your host. In this episode, Claire Woodwell joins us from Australia as we dive deeper into Australia's greatest national security threat and its intersection with the effects of climate change in the Indo-Pacific. Read more on the ASEAN Australia Review at ASip.org. Hi Claire, so in your piece, you zeroed in on the inability of conventional military response to provide tangible benefits to an average Australian. Could you tell us a little bit more about Australia's current national security strategy and why might it be becoming obsolete?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you very much for having me uh, on the podcast. It's very exciting to be here and speaking about the piece in the ASEAN Australia Review. So I think a lot of the world is currently focused on emerging threats and um, great power or conflict scenarios at the moment, which is not necessarily becoming obsolete. It's it's quite justified to, uh, in a military sense, prepare for conflict. But I think that um, a little bit of extra thought and consideration needs to be given to non-conventional threats such as climate change. And I think it's important for governments to start to plan and prepare um, for the effects of climate change and to invest in assets that have a dual-use purpose. So things that can be used to provide, for example, surveillance benefit in the region and with regards to potential threats, but also can be used to provide surveillance around natural disasters and provide um, information to help shape the response to uh, emerging climate change threats and not just traditional military threats.
1: Right, and I think it's definitely apparent with all the kind of changes we see because of climate change that there are additional threats now and it's kind of more complex in a way. So how was your time at the Royal Australian Air Force? Change your viewpoint on Australia's national security. Um, So...
0: I had quite a first-hand experience, I guess, um, being a part of the Royal Australian Air Force on uh, Australia's national security strategy and what that actually looks like in practice. So, it's a bit of a unique perspective um, to have been able to approach this article from. I think initially throughout my training and joining the military, you think about conflict and you think about what your role will be in in the event of a conflict. And you kind of think more about the traditional military roles that we've seen a lot of. But I was fortunate enough to end up in a space working with Australia's mobility assets. And a lot of that was focused on regional support. A lot of that was focused on aid distribution within the Indo-Pacific region. Mm -hmm. And so I had an initial thought about what I thought Australia's military strategy was, and then I got to see a very different part of it that really interrelates with um, what the article is about and adapting to and addressing some of those potential climate threats and what that means for Australia's security.
1: Right? could you share your first-hand experience on giving out aid and that side of Australia's military So me, personally, I had the opportunity to go to
0: the Solomon Islands, um, which is quite close to Australia, but also very, very different. And I got to interact with the local population there, and I got to help provide some some food and some lollies to kids. And I got to interact with the people there and talk a little bit about the effect of natural disasters on the Solomon Islands and Australia's military role and the Australian Federal Police role in the Solomon Islands. Islands and the contribution that that makes to their security, which in turn also benefits Australia's security. And then beyond that, I've seen a lot of instances of providing um, cyclone relief to Fiji, for example. I've seen yeah. instances of helping to plan permissions, providing aid relief to flooding areas in India. So there's been a lot of instances beyond Australia where I've also provided support domestically for um, climate-related events that I could see the effect and benefit that had for the individual country, but then also in turn, the effect and benefit that had for Australia's security and ultimately the region's security as well by providing aid and support to those those people in need.
1: And perhaps on a more personal note, is there a specific natural phenomenon that you've either experienced firsthand or witnessed vicariously through friends or family? And how has that impacted you as a young Australian?
0: Personally, I uh, was living in Brisbane during the 2011 floods there, um, which caused significant and extensive damage to a lot of the Brisbane city area. And then there were some flow and effects for regional areas as well. I've also had grandparents that have been affected by the bushfires in Canberra in the early 2000s. And a lot of my family lives in regional Victoria, which is a really um, agricultural area of Australia. And they're constantly faced with bushfires and droughts. And then even at the moment, there's flooding going on in Victoria. So I think living in a a country where there's so many potential threats from natural disasters and seeing over my lifetime how much worse that's gotten as the effects of climate change start to take shape. I think that's shaped how I've seen the military come in and provide support as much as they could, but then also from my experience, having been in the military as well, understanding that a lot of the platforms and a lot of the assets that we have aren't really designed to address that. And I think That got me thinking about what's going to happen as these events occur more frequently and as they become worse and the effects more broadly felt. And the fact that the Australian taxpayer is ultimately the person who pays for these military capabilities, why isn't there more investment in things to mitigate these threats and to also provide assistance regionally to partners who may not be able to have the same assets?
1: I totally agree. And I think the way Australia and ASEAN also merge is, of course, these climate change issues are shared. For instance, in the Philippines, we experienced the biggest cyclone last year, which is Typhoon Ghani. And it has devastated not just the Philippines, but also Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos with over 415 million US dollars of destruction. There's definitely that capability, especially what you mentioned about surveillance and also with the risk reduction where the military can come in to help in as well. In your piece, you expound on the impact levels of climate change and their intersection with national security. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, if for anyone that's read or had a look at the article, you'll see, um, I think it's figure number three in there, shows um, the broad and overarching effects of climate change. So, that's things like rising sea level, um, increasing terrestrial temperatures, ocean salination, those kind of individual factors on a broad scale that are yet to have much of an effect on Uh, humans. And then that makes its way down to what I've referred to as second order impacts. So these are events that are um, exacerbated, caused by those broader effects, things like heat waves, droughts, individual impact events. And then that kind of, I guess, distills down into the national security threat. So that's the point where those environmental hazards and those events then have human impacts. And when those intersect with humans and population centres, that's when climate begins to have a national security effect. So as those events occur, um, they obviously have flow-on effects and that can cause population displacement, it can cause resource scarcity, it can cause conflict as a result of those things and that's when the destabilising effect of those climate events and the broader climate change impacts translate into a direct national security threat um, and have a destabilizing effect in a country and also regionally as well
1: Yeah, definitely. It's important to note that with our countries and this region particularly, we have a growing number of young people, we have a growing number of population, and in a way, we are at risk and are vulnerable when it comes to the effects of climate change. And as you mentioned, there's displaced populations that can become a problem mobility-wise as well absolutely so with that climate related problems no no borders and so a call for collectivism is an imperative locally though what is the pulse in australia is there an increase in support for climate action or any growing climate movements and perhaps any talks in the parliament or anywhere in the government yeah climate in australia
0: is quite an interesting topic um Australia in a lot of ways is very advanced and very forward-leaning, but also in a lot of ways can be very conservative. And that's something that's definitely played out with the climate discussion in Australia. I'm sure you've probably heard it's been quite internationally discussed, Um, Australia's inability to commit to a climate uh, target and to commit to the Paris target as well. So there's a lot of hesitancy in our government right at the top of the leadership of the country to take any definitive action on climate change. And I think a lot of that comes from Australia's economic security being somewhat underpinned by non-renewable energy sources. For example, um, coal is still a significant industry in Australia. And as a result, there's A lot of the population that's worried about their job security and things like that, if Australia were to move towards a more climate-friendly renewable policy. But at the same time, there's a lot of young people who understand the effects um, that climate change is going to have and is already having, and they can see the future that they're going to be left with. And so there's this interesting um, tension between the conservative side of Australia and it's generally the older population who want things to continue for their economic security and the younger population who want things to change so that they are not left with a world that is significantly impacted by climate change. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of tension in Australia and it's an ongoing debate here. Um, and I think there's a lot of frustration with the younger younger Australians at the lack of a forward-leaning government policies on climate or even policies in line with a lot of what the rest of the world is willing to commit to and at least strive for?
1: I think it's not just in Australia as well. There is also that ongoing debate in many of the other countries. And I believe that the definitive kind of action towards climate change will really come from our generation
0: Yeah, I agree completely. I think the younger people um, in Australia are definitely the ones that are driving that movement and creating much more of a a movement around it, um, participating in international climate protests and always bringing the issue um, to government. So I'm hopeful that as younger people start to get into positions of leadership within the country that we might start to see a bit more change. (music)
1: In August 2020, ASEAN had a joint task force in humanitarian assistance and disaster relief to address the incoming natural disasters amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. So there was definitely a case of multiple burden for ASEAN and I believe the rest of the world as well but more specifically mm. in this region where we're more prone to cyclones where a majority of our countries are also part of the Pacific Ring of Fire and so on and so forth. Since ASEAN and Australia share the same ocean practically would there be a similar or ongoing talks for regional partnership to mitigate the effects of climate change and how does Australia play this role as well? I definitely think there's a, um, an
0: opportunity there that's not really being harnessed to the fullest extent at the moment. I think we're seeing a lot of discussion around uh, the quad, Japan, Australia, um, the US and India starting talks again. And I would really love to see the quad interface more with ASEAN because I think ASEAN hasn't really realized its full potential to be able to influence the region. A lot of people talk about it being, you know, the region's NATO, and I don't know that it is that, but I think the ability to have those collective conversations and um, the opportunity that that presents when you look at combining some of that with the Quad partners, Australia is perfectly placed to play a, a really good interface role between those two forums and to be that voice to take some of the discussion from ASEAN into the Quad. And I think Australia has expressed its interest to pivot back to the Indo-Pacific region and to refocus its efforts on the region. And ASEAN is an excellent forum to be able to to do that in, with ASEAN taking the lead around what is important to our neighbours and Australia being able to implement and lead some of that in different forums. So as climate change effects are going to have the biggest impact on the Indo-Pacific region, and as the article mentions it, it's genuinely an existential threat for some countries read from climate targets and things like that and more towards how we work cooperatively and how we work in a, an interoperative space between our different countries and how we use combined assets to provide a regional response to these climate effects. Um, as you mentioned you know a cyclone happens and it doesn't just occur in One country, it has an impact on the whole region and a lot of different countries as it moves through the region. And that's the same for a lot of the climate patterns and weather patterns that we see. And we're such a close knit region. We're really uniquely placed in that if one country is affected and its security is affected by climate, then the whole region is going to be affected as a result. So I think there's a really big opportunity um, for Australia to better interface with ASEAN and to provide that other avenue Um, to provide some of that further information and and partnerships to some of the other organizations that Australia is a part of.
1: Yeah, there's really a collective action that the Indo-Pacific region has to step in and say, hey, we got to solve this together instead of in a realist viewpoint where each country is, you know, pinning against each other. But in this case, it's quite the opposite. It's all about collaboration and having to work together to solve this global issue that will affect generations to come. Thank you so much, Claire. Perhaps you have anything to add? It's been amazing being a part of the ASEAN Australia
0: Review for this year, and there were some phenomenal articles in there, and it's it's great. It's kind of the first step in being a part of bringing together some of the younger voices from across the region. So very exciting to be a part of that. And, um, yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of ASEP On Air, special edition on the ASEP Review 2020. Get your copy of the ASEAN Australia Review at ASEP.org and follow us on all social media and subscribe to ASEP On Air on Spotify to catch our weekly episodes.